Miss Macintosh, my darling, Chapter 74, Part 1. Esther Longtree had gone on with her expectations. But this was the kind of thing she would not care to tell the jury, for she was increasingly pregnant in these later days, and she did not wish to lose herself among the web-like explanations or try to explain by the calendar what had happened to her so long ago. Her menses had stopped so long ago, of that she was sure. If she was mysterious, so were other people mysterious. All she wanted now was to be let alone outside the pale of law and to get married some day. She did not want to be arrested if brought into court because of something she could not prove. Some old feather, some old rosebud, a package of letters, a baby's foot, her absent-mindedness. She loved her woe, but it was hers and hers alone. Nevertheless, she had been threatened with arrest, and as yet she hadn't thought of no easy way to get out of the coming lawsuit and legal entanglements, like ropes thrown around her feet. There was nothing about her case in the law books, nothing, for no one like her had ever been brought to court before. Still, this was about to happen unless she could find some way out. She could just see the picnic, fe the feast upon her tragedy, if ever she had to face the jury. Had often dreamed of it, though it would not be until next autumn when the leaves were falling, and perhaps not even then. All the women would flock to the courthouse in droves. They would sit out under the cloud shadow under the bugling sign trees where the wind was blowing. They would accuse her and contradict themselves and still accuse her of this and that. Imagine the cloud shadow accusing her of the cloud. They would not try to understand her, although they were like her, although they were her pale reflection. They would talk about her, their voices shrill and far away. Perhaps someone would be sympathetic, but the generality would be unsympathetic, her natural enemies. What does she know, they would ask, of childbirth and labor pains? Where had she hidden her children? Had she ever so much as gotten up in the middle of the night to feed a hungry little mouth, to still its crime? Had she not been insolent to her parents? Yes, they would talk of her, Esther Longtree, who would have no word to say in her own defense, but only would sob into her handkerchief, unable to produce those three children who were sought for by their cruel contemptuous father. Her children were her tears. There would be so much old gossip on her. Some would say that she had forced the birth of her children before they were ready for birth. Someone would be sure to produce a bloody handkerchief. Some would say that she had killed her children by drowning them like kittens in a barrel, and others that it was not possible, for her children were never born and were never conceived. That was the worst accusation, the one which she could not bear, thinking of it, the fact that she might have no children. She had given birth to as many as the stars in the sky, and her amplitude was good, and she was not withered. The fathers were the withered ones. What if her own father, the policeman, should be brought to testify? She could not suffer this. It would make her sick at the stomach, just as she now was. Some would say that she had already heard rumored. Some would say what she had already heard rumored. That she had never had a man in her life. That she was an old maid plucking at a daisy's petals. So the trial should be called off. If the case was dismissed, that would hurt her, too. Some would say she had gone crazy. Yes, that she was a crazy old mule in heat. Imagine that she was in a family way and it was impossible, but it was harmless. They would say she stank. So there were many reasons why she could not face the jury and produce out of the empty, imploring past. Three little children of different ages and sizes said to belong to one disappointed, cruel father. Three little children with, her, with hair and hearts and eyes. She had already tried to explain to him what had become of them, and he had not believed her, for it was not in his convenience to do so. Whatever she said to the jury would incriminate her further. 
If, of course, she spoke, and she might be silent as a feather drifting from the sky, she might give birth to nothing. Something of the past might whistle in her ears. She might see all the faces of all her children in the courtroom, little white faces propped on ice floes, little white faces where the people were supposed to be. She might give birth to nothing, and she might give birth to something. She might fall into a fit, and then it would be worse. What would happen would be worse than what would not happen. If only she were in Chicago, if that was where she lived and not here, she might escape when the policeman came to arrest her. But in the small town, what chance does she have? Every movement she made be known in the past of policeman being her own father. She knew she could be easily shadowed here, that if she crossed the fields at dusk among the floods of blackbirds, if she so much as stopped to unfasten her shoe, someone might see her and tell her father. She knew she was in such an exposed position and had no chance when she faced the jury to explain that she was not guilty. She was also innocent and disappointed, too. God, there was no trouble but the trouble of expectation. If she were in Chicago now, she could lose herself in that great city. No one would know her for who she was. She could say one thing to one person and another to another. The confusion of events would be natural. She, her, her head roared here with tiny voices of the stillborn. Every jewel emitted a tiny voice. There her head would roar with the sound of traffic, and if she was perpetually pregnant as she passed among so many people, who would know yesterday and who would know tomorrow? She could say that her husband had been lost at sea, lifting his withered arm just as the boat went down, all hands being lost aboard, or that he was the captain of a Great Lakes steamer, Great Lakes steamer, which had not touched shore for many years, or that he was the captain of a frozen ice boat. She could say what she pleased, and no one would be astonished. It was harder to be here where she had always been, for no invention was possible, and she could not deceive the people who had always been acquainted with her, and her every little habit, at least, could not unless she tried. She was too well known here. When she was brought before the jury, she would testify as to what they had seen and had not seen, and they would get her all mixed up, and character witnesses would say that she had always been crazy, not even popular, and so she ought to be put away. Else they would say that she ought to be let alone. It might happen thus or otherwise. Some puny father might come forward and say that he had been a father or an uncle. No one could be depended upon. She had got into this, though, had made this vast mistake which might bring on these consequences. She had answered the letters of a father who was not dying, and that had been the worst mistake of her life. Putting it all into handwriting, signing her name, adding some postscripts too, her numerous afterthoughts which she should have saved for some old preacher or jack in the pulpit. Perhaps some little Johnny Jump-Up or Four O'Clock or Snapdragon or Shepherd's Purse. How could she have made this vast mistake to answer the letters of a father who was not dying, who was not unhealthy? Perhaps because so few like that had written to her before. Yet, as a matter of fact, it was she who had first started the correspondence, just to tease him when she had supposed he was not interested in her or his children, just to tease him because he was a Chicago detective and specialist in murder mysteries, one who could solve all murder mysteries but his own, and she had kept him guessing for many years. But now he was, able, he was about to confront her with the evidence, her handwriting, her fingerprints, her half-marks, a lock of golden hair, and this was why he wanted her to be brought to trial, to answer his questions. Where were his children, his three children, and where had she hidden them, and what had become of them? Questions she could not answer. She had tried answering by letter, and had gotten mixed in deeper and deeper mysteries, partly because she was so absent-minded. How could she have made this vast, vast mistake, she often wondered, to answer letters of a father who was not dying and was healthy, 
a Chicago detective who had come here three times in three different years when he was looking for an elusive murderer and who had not found the murderer, of course, in this neighborhood, no sign of him, but had found Esther Longtree lying on the bare ground with her face up in the cold rain, her sightless brown eyes staring fixedly at the gray, hovering winter sky. Three times, three different winters, when he was looking for the same murderer, a man who had killed several wives, he had come here, trying to trace the murderer's footsteps, and all he had ever found was Esther Longtree, whom he had always taken to be a corpse, perhaps a victim of some foul rapist, for she had always been lying on the bare ground, with her eyes set in her head, bird dung upon her cheeks, and her dark hair tangled and matted with mud and thorns. Her cheeks purple in the gray streaked light, her hands folded, her cloth coat open and torn and drawn up around her naked mottled hips, and her legs a straddle and one foot shoeless. Yet there seemed not to have been any struggle, no bush being broken, no ground trampled, no other footsteps but hers in a circle, and no surrounding evidence of any kind, no evidence of any other being. It had always been this way by chance three winters when the Chicago detective found her, not looking her best. Upon each occasion she had been only sleeping in the cold, sweet, brownish rain, expecting no one, so by chance she had surprised him, the Chicago detective, peering down at her with pale, unastonished eyes behind a pair of rimless eyeglasses, which had dropped from his nose when he knelt beside her to examine her further. Thus this detective had left some evidence by which she could trace him and threaten him, his eyeglasses, his footprints too, his calling card, and other matters, a thread from his coat sleeve, a stillborn. God, it made her laugh, even so late as now, to think of him without the slightest bitterness. It made her laugh to think she had begun by fooling him, a man who detected mystery, who should have known she had not been assaulted and was not dead, but was only sleeping after a night of love. She herself had not even dreamed he was a detective until he told her. She would have asked him no questions as to his occupation. He could have been a winter bird watcher or a traveling soap salesman who went by foot from city to city, door to door. He could have been anybody, but he had been himself, she still supposed, even though he had remarked that he was always in disguise and could change his personality and was partly wax and was partly human. The wax was what had confounded her. That is, she had been interested to find out what part was not human. It was because she was so dumb and, of course, so brilliant in secrecy. He was without doubt one of the fathers she remembered most distinctly, clear as the cracked church bells ringing his face, his shoulders, his hat that half-shadowed his face, his three appearances upon the subtle winter landscape, its desolation as of her heart, all the intervening months and years and days and nights, the mother egg, the father cell, their meeting, all the freezing conceptions, all the naked and veiled doubts, all his stillborn, which were the indirect and the direct result, for he had made her pregnant. How she had lain under the dark, blowing, rainy sky, motionless, afraid to move, and had seen him peering down speculatively upon her with pale, unastonished eyes, coldly gleaming like a businessman's. How she had at first supposed he was a murderer, killing helpless women, killing little children in the dull winter meadows. For there was a bloody knife in his hands, purple in the brackish gray light. How he had knelt beside her body and had felt her pulse and found her heartbeat, and had put the bloody knife into his coat pocket, first wiping his hands, and then had taken her so quickly that she had hardly realized it. Of course, there had been some preliminaries. First, of course, he had unlocked her hands, had examined her broken fingernails, and was triumphant when he found some evidence, which was the, what he was look, always looking for. He had scraped off the bird dung. He had found a gold hair in her clenched right hand, a long, undulating gold hair, which he had held up in the dark, rainy, rainy light, and had studied for a long time, and then had put into his other coat pocket, 
wrap it in a piece of tissue paper so that it would not be lost. And maybe this was what he was going to produce in the courtroom, for he had acted as if he thought it was the evidence of something, of some old crime. She could not remember much else but this long, undulating gold hair in the gray washed light. There had probably been too much passion in the assault. Everything else had gone black. Her eyes had stared at some, remem at some remembered sky. Anyhow, groveling on the ground there, he had hardly gotten to the point when it was over, silence as the dropping of a handkerchief in an absolutely silent world. Yet so fraught with weighty consequences for her, the bereft woman, perpetually bereft, for there was then the evidence of sudden death, the broken gooseberry bushes, the trampled crop bushes, the fields of the wild mustard stained with her blood, the split wild cherry and walnut trees, a flame upon the horizon, lightning that never struck, the pink illumination of the evening sky, and a buzzard hanging around, and a buzzard hanging rounded like a period to punctuate the long sentence of death. All had passed so quickly as in a dream. The livid sunset, a single wound, nothing else, her staring eyes. She had been so passive and helpless and indifferent and moved. Staring at the rapidly changing sky, the stars flooded with the last sunset, which was like the first. Their intercourse had passed too quickly to be realized, and then there was long aftermath, the calm that always follows violence, and there were her memories of other intercourses, as like this is the snow falling on a grave. She was so utterly experienced and far away. Something of her had never yielded. She had always been drifting far away with the stillborn. But for what a brief moment of man's pleasure it seemed to her, a woman must suffer so long. Her ivory calm was broken, the door unlocked, the heart leaking, for she had been made pregnant with the stillborn once again. She could just feel it then, like an icicle stabbing her forehead. And then, then, there, and then there was once again the everlasting aftermath, the calm. And there were their little white hands, which seemed to be clapping in all the leafless bushes or fluttering far away like wings, and the old broken-backed mule, but that beast of burden, lonely against the sky, just as always, and the wind. All these things she had not noticed then. The Chicago detective probably had not noticed the winter bee, the old mule. Of course, he could not have noticed the winter bee, the old mule that was always where she was out of doors. For these were not evidence of any kind, nor was the sky implicated and involved with her, a pregnant woman, but she had noticed the emptiness, the hollowness, and had heard little voices, thin and clear, and the sobbing of a bird, and had been overwhelmed even then with the certitude that what had been conceived was already dead, and dead before it was conceived. There had been something heavy inside of her, something that weighed her down. There had been those cracked church bells ringing. It was the same with some of the others, such as the soap salesman, who had implored her for her forgiveness. The same circumstance to the in the generalities and in the particulars. Only she had not remarked upon the sameness of the facts, for she had felt that silence would be the soul of discretion, considering that the man had held a bloody knife up in the dark light. Something had warned her to be silent and different. She had felt even then as if the icy hand of death was being laid upon her, but it was not his hand against her mouth. It was a little hand of dark brown and washed gray like an old winter leaf. It was a child's hand, pale and helpless. That was what had scared her more than the fumbling detective, who was only a man. It was not a spirit in the ether, not a child. Of course, they had both been so mistaken about each other in the beginning all those times, just as she had remarked before, and a mistake was their subsequent history because of this. Lying in the red mud, almost lifeless, she had supposed that, as he upheld his bloody hand, he was some returning rapist who might murder her with one wound in the winter meadows. She had not cared if it had been so. Then her parents would have looked for her everywhere, too, and the night policeman who had separated so many couples would wonder why he had never separated his daughter from men. 
On the other hand, the detective had been mistaken, too, about her. He had said so afterwards, smiling. He was used to uncovering so many bodies. He had supposed that, as she lay so still, her eyes unchanging in their expression and filmed with frost, her mouth wide open in a line of foam frozen in each corner, her cheeks covered with the droppings of winter birds who flooded heaven's zenith, her hair torn, her dark, swollen hands folded beneath her bared breasts, stained by exposure. She must have suffered some greater injustice, some greater wrong, that had been left to rot upon the marshy winter landscape. A moss rosebud, brown as a mushroom with blackened edges, had been laid between her breasts, perhaps by the murderer himself, to show his contrition. The Chicago detective had just stood there with his bloody knife in his hands, looking down, but it all seemed so peaceful. He had almost looked around him for a Bible, a prayer book, or even a little preacher who would preach the sermon and help him put her away. It was too late, he had supposed to call the doctor, for he had supposed quite naturally that she was dead, killed by a murderer, some other with a bloody knife and an unastonished speculative eyes. He was mistaken in this, of course, and in subsequent, subsequent matters, which she would later explain. She was not entirely dead, for she was alive, and she had been wounded only once by one sharp pain long, long ago in utter darkness. So this one wound was the one wound which had not closed, and she had not told anyone. So the detective had found her when he was looking for some other body or someone else, a murderer in Winter Meadows. Looking for an escaped murderer, a man who had killed many women because of the cracked church bells always ringing, ringing, ringing in his ears, and someone calling him yellow, he had found Esther Longtree, stretched out on the muddy flats with her head pillowed on a rock, and her mottled breast bared to the rain which had fallen slowly like a seepage. The sky had been filled with seepage always as if the sky were wounded too. The river too had seemed flattened out, spreading its fingers among the low, gray, bushy hills. All had been so quiet in the atmosphere, no one had moved. At least for a while it seemed so to mis seemed so to Esther Longtree, sleeping with her eyes wide open. When she was awakened, it had been quite still. There was the Chicago detective standing above her each time, wiping his hands. His skin was yellowish in the dull light. She had not realized, of course, that this would be the beginning of another mystery, even though the Chicago detective had raped her mysteriously, leaving the evidence, the symptoms, the signs. She could swear that he had done this. It had come three times. He had spoiled the withered flowers. There had been no evidence but that which, most carelessly, it seemed to her, considering that he was a detective. He left when he went away. His eyeglasses, his calling card, a bone button, the frozen conception, a thread, and a single spot of brown blood above her heart. If she had wished to look for him, she could always have found him, for he had left the evidence of his guilt. It would have been useless for him to have tried to escape. She herself was blameless as the sunset.